Bienvenidos, mi gente. Welcome back to another episode of Brownie in Blue. On this episode, I talk with a retired officer from the state of Michigan, Tony McNeil. Tony provides his own experiences in being a law enforcement officer and how he transitioned into a podcast host himself. Tony is infectious with laughter and a positive attitude, and there's no wonder why he was such an impactful officer and now a successful entrepreneur and podcaster with his own show called The Off-Duty Podcast. Let's listen and enjoy the show. Mi gente, welcome back to Brownie and Blue Podcast. I am so excited for this next guest. We are switching roles. Well, he's switching roles, let's say that. <laughs> he is usually the host in interviewing guests. Today, he's going to be the guest. I'm so excited. Uh, please welcome Tony McNeil. He is the creator and host of the Off-Duty Podcast, which highlights the lives of law enforcement officers all across our great nation. He's a 20-year law enforcement veteran from Southfield PD in the state of Michigan. Retired now, right, Tony? Yes, sir. He's also worked patrol. He was a detective working commercial, breaking and entering cases. He was a hostage negotiator, was a field training officer, and won numerous awards and was named Everyday Hero by local TV news. And most importantly, Tony is a husband of 27 years and also a father of two beautiful girls. And I will say this, Tony, uh, just based off of the listeners, we chatted offline. Tony's an avid golfer. I'm not a golfer. I'd probably lose every single ball <laughs> if we went golfing. And for those that aren't even like this isn't on TV or anything, but uh, Tony's wearing my favorite football slash college team, which makes it even that much more exciting. University of Miami. You got to give props to Miami out there. Yes, sir. It's always about the you. <laughs> so, Tony, um, did I miss anything based off of you wanted to add anything on your bio? No, man, you covered everything. You covered everything. I'm, I, I've been looking forward to this all day. You know, like I told you before we started recording, I'm nervous. <laughs> this is actually the first time I've been on this side of the mic, you know, so I'm a little, <laughs> I'm a little nervous here. But I, I appreciate you having me come on, man, and, and kick it with you. Yeah, definitely, man. This is going to be great. And there's nothing to be nervous about because, honestly, <laughs> you, just, you just tell the story, you do your thing, and uh, I, I promise you, just like you have told me, and I'm sure you've told other people, authenticity resonates across any type of forum, right? So true. Um, and, that's, and that's what this is. Um, so I know in your podcast, I do it as well in different ways. It's all the same thing. We ask people what their motivations were to become whatever it was in law enforcement or even a first mm -hmm. responder. Um, what was your motivation? And how did that come about for you? Oh, man, let me tell you something, Merrick. I, for me, I can almost guarantee you I'm in the majority or in the, in the minority when it comes to this story because I had zero interest in becoming a cop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually, I played college football for a year um, at a junior college. I tore my knee up and I ended up moving back home. And ever since I was a kid, I always wanted to start a business. 
that was that was the only thing in life I wanted I knew for a fact that I wanted to do and at the time you know I went back and I started working in a restaurant that I had worked in when I was in high school trying to figure out what I was going to do how I could I was 25 26 years old at the time I didn't have a you know have any money the credit wasn't there to start a business you know so I'm just thinking you know what can I do to come up with some money and I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason in life. And this particular day, it was during our lunch break at the restaurant. I'm standing up at the front of the restaurant and in walks the new chief of police in the city of Southfield. And he's going around to different businesses and he's introducing himself to everybody. And I just happened to be the only person up front. Usually the owner was up there and, you know, but I was the only person up there at that time. So he starts talking to him and he goes, have you ever thought about becoming a cop? No, but when he said that, the first thing that entered my mind was, that's how I can get the money to start my business. <laughs> <laughs> you were using that as, a, as the stepping stone, huh? Yeah, yeah, man. And he's, you know, he went on and he started telling me about their cadet program. And I would, and I applied and tested. And out of, I think it was 150 people, I finished number three on the list. And a couple of weeks later, man, I was hired and going to the academy. That's crazy. Yeah. You, that, that, yeah, you're right. You are in the minority with, with that background or yeah. that motivation. I, I'll say this. I'm probably with you because I never wanted to be a police officer. Okay. Ever. That was, in a sense, my last resort and what I looked at as the big picture of life, which is, I need a retirement. I don't want to sit in a cubicle. I don't want to go get my master's. Mm -hmm. And somehow, some way, so my mother was a law enforcement officer in the same department that I went to, and she was already retired when I left college. Okay. Um, so, but at the time, I, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and I went into law enforcement, and thankfully I did because it, it showed a lot. Um, it made me grow as a person and as a man. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's the other thing. So to get to this question, kind of segue into it is, you know, when you got into the profession, even though you never really thought about it until that chief walked in and you went through that whole process, you know, what was your mindset even going into that? And then what did you learn about yourself as you went into the career and how did that change for you? Well, man, it was crazy because, at that time, I started right when the whole Rodney King thing was breaking off. Oof. <laughs> Oof. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And that was in, in 92. And it was funny for me because, like I said, no one in my family had ever been in law enforcement. I never, the, the thought never even entered my mind about going into law enforcement. Mm. And all I could think about was a way I can get some money to start a business. And I'll never forget my very first day on the job. <laughs> it was crazy. My, my, my FTO at the time, who later became my, my lieutenant, the very first arrest, you know, the, it was the first traffic stop we made. And he looks at me, the guy that we stopped was 6'7", 340. Damn. And <laughs> <laughs> the guy Good had, Lord. yeah, the guy had 40 suspensions on his driver's license. And my lieutenant or my FTO at the time, he looks at me, he goes, whatever you do, don't piss this guy off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no shit. Thanks. LP. So I'm thinking to, yeah, I'm thinking to myself, what in the world have I gotten into? 
you know, <laughs> because even, even in the, even in the FTO program, that was literally, literally my third day on the road. And right after that, the next run we get was a semi truck that rolled over and the driver's head went out the window and hit the railing on the freeway and split his brain. So it split his skull open oh and his brain was literally dripping down onto under cars passing underneath. So, you know, for me, who was working as a cook six months earlier to come in and start seeing all this stuff. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> this <laughs> is crazy. Like, that's true you know? on the job training. I mean, yeah, that but, right there. But it, it, it taught me a lot about myself because I've always been kind of the cool headed type. And, and I'm, I should, let me, let me, let me correct that. I'm cool headed until I have a reason not to be. Okay. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. but it, the, the job, I realized it really taught me to control that a little bit more because I saw how quickly things could go sideways and I could control the direction in which those things went simply by the way I spoke with people, mm -hmm. you know, and I learned that very on in the FTO program. And that was one thing I was thankful for. I had some really good FTOs that really drilled that into me that, yeah, you're, you may not be dealing with some of the best people, you know, on the planet, but you still got to treat them with respect, mm -hmm. you know, and until they give you a reason to treat them different, that's how you come out the gate. And I think that's something that stuck with me throughout my whole career. And I don't, I don't know, man, I think that's, for me, I would say that's probably been the biggest thing. It, it taught me that I had to, and you can ask my wife. I mean, I, I, at times I could, I really can be, I don't want to say insensitive, but I can really give the appearance that I don't give a damn, but that's not the case. It's, it's simply the fact that I don't show a lot of emotion mm. and I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if it was an up, up. And I, yeah, actually I do know where it comes from. My dad told me he loved me once in his, in my entire life, mm. you know, I, I knew he loved me. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. I knew that he loved me, but he never was. He was not the type of, my father was the typical Southern black man. Mm -hmm. Their way of showing love was to put food on the table, a roof over your head and clothes on your back. You know, that was his way of showing me that he loved me, you know? And I, and I think that, is where that lack of showing emotion may come from. And, you know, there was other things going on growing up. You know, my, my dad was the best father on the planet until he had a drink. Mm. And once he started drinking, you know, that side of him came out. And, you know, him and mom would always be arguing and everything. And I saw all of that growing up. And as the oldest, you know, I would just have to protect my younger brother and sister from it. And I always said to myself, that was something I do not want as a man when I grow up to, to argue. And to this, uh, to this day, you guys, my wife, I, I, I hate to argue, mm -hmm. you know, and, but once I got into the job, I realized that that was something that I may have to do, whether I, right. I enjoyed it or not, you know, but yeah, man, but it, it was for someone that never wanted to go into law enforcement to, to just be thrown in like that. It was, it was quite a, a, uh, eye-opening for me because I actually worked in the city that I grew up in and I never saw that side of the city before, mm. you know, because the way Southfield was, it's 27 square miles. 
And it's kind of, at the time, it was really not segregated, but it was sectioned off. Like we border Detroit on our south side. And from Eight Mile, everybody knows about Eight Mile from Eminem in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy rabbit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But from Eight Mile up to Ten Mile on the south, on the south um, east side of the city, you had one type of clientele from the middle of the city over to the southwest corner you had a whole nother set of clientele but once you crossed 10 mile you know you dealt with a whole different type of clientele and for me growing up in southfield going onto that southwest side of the corner that was foreign to me mm. i had never been down there before in all the time that i lived in southfield and, you know and that was the side where we would have and it's, it's funny, we used to call it Indian country because all the streets were had Indian names. Mm-hmm. And there was maybe five families down there that just terrorized that area. If you had a run down there, somehow, some way, somebody from one of those five families were involved. <laughs> Isn't that amazing how it's like uh, generational criminal, criminal uh, things and dealings is all it somehow becomes generational throughout families. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I say all of that to say that, man, once I got into the job, it was a real eye opener for me. And it really brought out a side in me that I didn't think was 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 in me. You know, and I, it's, it's funny because when I think about it, like I say, now looking back at my career, those early days, as fun as they were, I mean, I, I learned so much, man. The, the, the job just really taught me so much about people. And I think to this day, that's probably one of the biggest things I took away from it is my ability to read people. Mm. That's yeah, that's uh, that's definitely true. And you know, you talked about, you touched on something for one, I just want to commend you on because it is a vulnerable thing. And I always have to tell guests and whoever, like, you know, sometimes wounds in the past, especially with like your father that you talked about and the drinking, mm-hmm. there's abuse and stuff like that. Um, even if there was, right, you said you had to, you had to protect your brother and sister um, from, from this person that was causing this kind of damage, you know, from a either physical or even emotional way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talked about that. I want to, I want to really like hone in on the fact that it takes a lot to be able to be aware of the, how that affected you and how you deal with things, especially when you went on to the job where not only did you, it sounds like you avoided confrontation, even verbally to where you don't want to just get involved with any of that stuff, but even dealing with that on the job to the point where you learned quickly from what it sounds like to de-escalate situations by avoiding confrontation, but by avoiding it through what they call verbal judo. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, exactly. that's, that's huge. Right. Like, I mean, that's a huge thing for a lot of police officers to learn, but to also apply because you can, you can show it in the academies, you can somewhat teach it, but ultimately people's officers own kind of personalities, their own, you know, idiosyncrasies can get in the way of how they end up treating people, right? Big time. And that's where, and that's where problems arise. I've seen officers come in and they, you know, everything's calm and they're the first ones. That's why your FTO was like, don't piss this dude (laughs) off. 
<laughs> the last thing we want to do is fight this behemoth of a man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. So, yeah. but yeah, there's officers, there's tons of officers out here that don't do that. And they, they treat people with disrespect and they make it known that this and the us against them mentality. Well, for me, I, I learned, I started off at the same with everybody. You got respected no matter who you are or what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And you, I had a three strike rule. The first time I'm going to give you the best of me. The second time you may see a different side of me. <laughs> the third time you're not going to like me. <laughs> uh, but very rarely did I get to that third time. Yeah. Because it always came across. Whether that being the friendly first person or the second person where they say, hey, okay, this cat's for real. So let me tone it down, mm-hmm. you know? And it's, it's, it's funny. I, I mean, to me, Police work is simply about, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm referring to just just your everyday interactions. We could save ourselves so much aggravation sometimes just simply by the way we talk to people. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember a young lady that lived in one of the trailer parks that we had in the city. She was maybe 19, 20, and she had a, uh, a baby that was maybe a year old. And I still remember her name. Name was um, um, Natasha. Mm -hmm. And I got to run down to her place one night. And, you know, there was a couple other officers and they they really didn't want to deal with it. You know, so I took the time. I listened to her problems and and heard her out. And the following week, I was on another run. And I heard her place, a run to her place come out, a barricaded subject. She has the baby in the house and they feared that she was going to harm the baby. Mm. So when I get down, I clear my, the run that I was on, I drive down there and I get down there. They got people surrounding the, the trailer and everything. And they're getting ready to call in the hostage team. I just walked up, knock on the door. Natasha, open the door. She go, Officer, <laughs> she go, Officer McNeil. I said, yeah, open the door, girl. She opened the door. We went and sat down and talked. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? that's the, that's that rapport building that you've been doing right like you yeah. and that's huge too because that um you know i hate the fact that they somebody monetized the the term community policing when policing that's pretty much what it is it's you you're getting out knowing your community talking to your shop owners talking to heck talking to even the winos that are on the corner yeah. hanging out you know, the drug dealers and stuff like that, because they're not always dealing drugs, right? They're not always having, you know, drinks or doing something crazy. And, you know, building rapport is such a needful thing. And it does show, I almost look at it like this, you're putting, you're putting money into a bank, right? You're Mm -hmm. putting bits and pieces of money into a bank. And at some point, just like you did with Natasha, you put that previous, you had some money in the bank on the mm-hmm. good side. And this is that the building of rapport is such an important piece in policing. And I think even with this younger generation, and I don't know whether you've seen it or not, but even in this younger generation, and you've interviewed tons of law enforcement all across. But when I was leaving my department after 20 years, there was younger guys, and it's almost as if they were just, you couldn't talk with them and you couldn't explain things to them 
and they weren't able to talk to the people that they were dealing with in the community because yeah. of all this technological quote unquote advances. Yeah. You, you know, and it was just hard. It, I, I would look at them and be like, how is this going to translate into bridging a community, you know, um, effect of, of positiveness? Yeah. You know yeah, I mean? man, you are so right. It's <laughs> since I've gotten out of, out of law enforcement and I've been doing the podcast, a lot of the people that are interview and, and it, it, uh, let me tell you how the, the podcast came about. About when, when I retired, I got into acting and I started acting and taking lessons and all this stuff. And I wanted to do a TV show called Off Duty, where mm. I go around and I interview the men and women of law enforcement to show a personal side. Mm. It was really hard to get men and women in law enforcement to go on camera and talk about themselves. So during the pandemic, I started seeing all these quote, Instagram cops. And I started saying to myself, you know what? Here are, a, here's a group of cops that's not afraid to put themselves out there. And I started reaching out to them. That's how I came up with the idea to start to, you know, to turn off duty into a podcast. Mm -hmm. And I, I say that because there's this younger generation, they can really take this technology and they can put it to good use. And you see that on TikTok and, and some of the other things that, that these, these, these young people are doing with social media that, that, that are in, in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, like you said, when, when I was still working and this was coming out, this technology stuff, because you think about it, Facebook didn't come around until like 2007. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the smartphones as we know them now didn't really come out till 2006, 2007, somewhere around there. Right. And so this was all new for everybody. But obviously, the young people, they they took on to it quickly. And you are absolutely right, man. I'll never forget when I was at FTO. I had a, a recruit and he pulls out a GPS. And I'm looking, I'm like, well, what is that? He goes, my GPS. I snatched it off the counter off the dashboard and I go GPS if I'm in a fight and I'm getting my ass kicked and you sitting here trying to program a, a GPS to figure out where I'm at you'll get your ass kicked yeah <laughs> I see here's a map learn the map learn the city <laughs> you know so technology has its advantages but it has to be implemented in the right way and I think young people nowadays rely on it so much and it's is really made a lot of them they don't know how to interact with other people face to face mm -hmm. you know if they're not texting they can't talk mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that's, that's true yeah it is true and it, it brings on a whole different set of problems because those people then become leaders in in departments right and so yeah. when they can't talk to people or they have issues talking with people and they can't read body language because they've been buried in technology and their phone and these people become leaders what what happens to the person or the men and women that they end up leading well it becomes mm -hmm. where i think i see even in these days and not to get off track but what i see is a lot of treating treating policing as if it's like a business right yeah you know mm -hmm. you you look at officers with as they're EIN, their employee identification number, their badge number, 
You don't look at them as like the person, like you're interviewing officers to show the humanness of what's inside that uniform. You Mm -hmm. know, there's a, there's a husband, there's a wife, there's a father, mother, brother, sister, you know, a person who has wants and needs and, and, you know, can play the guitar and wants to go act and be an entrepreneur, (laughs) you know, there's so many different facets to a person that's just in a uniform and it's a shame. Um, One of the things that I wanted to get into with you is that there is, and you talked about this from a personal standpoint, even as a young, as a young person, there's personal adversities that we all have to go through and Mm -hmm. struggle struggle can be a very strengthening thing to make you better mm-hmm. on the end, right? We all have to go through that. Mm-hmm. What adversity professionally or personally have you faced in your life? Oh, man. Um, I'll say probably the first thing to come to mind would be after I retired, I um, opened up a cell phone store and the store didn't, it didn't last. And I, I was failing at the store and I, I, I never told my wife how I was failing in the store. And as a result, I ended up having to file bankruptcy. And I'll never forget the day that I had to tell her, you know, that the store had failed and what was going on and how hurt she was and how hurt I was and what it was doing to us as a couple. And I can only say that that was probably one of the lowest points in my life. Cause I remember sitting in the store and just sitting on the floor, like, why, why is this happening? Why is this not working? You know, the way I, the way I wanted it to work. And I ended up accumulating all this debt, trying to get it to work. And it just would not, it just would not happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I never told my wife about what was going on because I did, I thought I could turn it around in time, mm-hmm. you know, but before I finally got around to telling her it was too late. And it caused a lot of issues between us, you know, because we had just planned a big trip that we were, we were going on with the family. And I remember we were over in, I think we were in St. Martin, I believe it was, or Turks and Caicos. I can't remember where we were at exactly, but I get a call from a, from a uh, debt collector. He was an attorney for one of the companies or something that I had owed money to. And he's telling me how he's going to have the share of, you know, um, come by and, and, and seize my property and all this stuff. And, and I'll never forget that I had my two daughters with me and we were walking through the resort. And then he's, my daughter just happens to see an email from this guy. Now, my daughter at the time was like 12, 13. Mm-hmm. And this guy just started sending out these, just blasting these emails out to anybody associated with me, Mm. you know, and it was just a hard time. And I remember sitting in my attorney's office with my wife, because I was doing everything I could to protect her from having to file bankruptcy. Also. I mean, at the time we had just built, you know, with, it wasn't, we hadn't just built it, but we had built the house of our dream. We were living in a 4,000 square foot house on a lake. We were, we were doing well. And we ended up having to sell that house you know, and it really took a toll on us as a couple, you know, like I said, I remember sitting in our attorney's office and I'm crying, she's crying. And it was a low point big time in our marriage, you know, and we ended up having to move into this condo that we both hated and everything. 
but on the end of that we we worked through it you know we 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 worked through it together and just last week my wife and i you know we were laying in bed watching tv and she goes you know through this pandemic we've gotten so much closer mm. as a couple as a couple and it's true i think everything that we went through has made us closer a lot closer as a couple you know mm-hmm. and it's, it's it's so it's so weird man because when i was working a, you know especially the last five years and, and I'm, I'm kind of skipping all over the place here a little bit but i it, i keep thinking about all this stuff and it and it keeps coming to mind but my last five years on the job i i i, I have a, a a blood clotting disorder that was hereditary that has almost killed me twice and the second time i had a, a incident was in 2008 we were on vacation and i was taking some some luggage up the stairs and i walked up maybe about 10 stairs or so but by the time i got to the top of the stairs i was dripping wet and out of breath and my wife thought i was having a heart attack so i ended up going to the doctor because we had flew home i go to i actually worked that night and the next day I went to the doctor, but my leg was killing me and I didn't understand why. Long story short, I ended up having um, a blood clot and a five inch blood clot in my lungs. Wow. And yeah, and I remember my doctor told me that, you know, if you're gonna continue as a police officer, you have to come off the road. You cannot be on the road because you're gonna be on blood thinners the rest of your life. And I, 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 the only position they could put me in was at the front desk, which I absolutely hated. And it changed me as a person. I became more very unfriendly, I'll put it that way. I started to hate people. You know, my wife calls me crotchety, <laughs> you know, but I, I started to hate people, but it wasn't until, until after I, re, I retired, probably about six months, I'll never forget, my daughters came to me and they said to me, Dad, we've noticed a change in you. And that was for the better. You know, they said your attitude has changed. And I think it was because of just escaping that environment that I was, I was not enjoying because I love police work up until that point. I absolutely love what I was doing. But up to that point, it was just, it changed. That was the first time I could say it. I, it police work actually changed me as a person, mm. you know, which was something that, and I'll never forget when I became a cop, I said, I would never allow this because I saw when I got hired, a lot of the guys that I worked with were a lot older. They were, a lot of these guys were from the late sixties, early seventies that I worked with and they were crotchety old men. And I remember saying to myself, I would never become like that. Well, I did. And it wasn't until I retired and got out of that environment and started to get happy again, that my attitude started to change. And like I say, then I, right after that, I got into the cell phone store and then that whole thing started with my wife and we made it through. We, we, we are much better today for everything that we went through. And, and like I said earlier, man, I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason to us, good, bad, or otherwise. And I'm a living example of that. And, Another story, and I know I tell a lot of stories here, but <laughs> that's what hey man, that's what this is for, you know. Even me getting sick, man, and going through the hell that I went through on those five years on that desk, it was not until the last day that I was working 
that I realized why God put me through everything that he put me through. About eight months prior to me retiring, a lady came in with her 12-year-old son and her, grand and her mother. Mm -hmm. And I will never forget, she looks at me, she goes, I'm keeping, you can keep his ass here. He hits me, he hits my mom, I'm done with him. Do whatever you wanna do with him, but he is not coming back to my house. I was already having a bad day that day. <laughs> and I took the young man aside and I looked at him and I said, go ahead, hit me. I'm gonna give you one swing and I'm gonna wear your ass out. And he started clenching his fist and started crying and everything. And I looked at him and I go, what are you crying for? You were, you were a man when you were punching on your mother and your grandmother. Now you got a man in your face and you wanna cry? Long story short, we end up talking for about 30 minutes, man. And the last thing I said to him was, look, I don't know you, you don't know me. But if I get an inkling that you put your hands on another human being, I will personally track you down and beat your ass. <laughs> That, that was the last thing I said to him. And the day that I retired, they were having a cake reception for me, cake and coffee reception for me. He and his mom came into the station and brought me a card and gave me a hug and said, thank you. Mm. And his mom said, had you not talked to him that day or ever since you talked to him that day, he's doing better in school. He doesn't hit me. He doesn't hit my mom. And that was the moment I realized that my illness, the five years of hell that I went through on that desk, it was all for a reason. And that was the moment. And that's why I say everything that happens to us in life happens for a reason, good, bad, or, other, or otherwise. That's amazing. But as you told me that, I'm sitting there thinking you influenced a change in this kid's life that possibly who knows where he'd be today. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, I know, I, know been, he did get, I know he did get accepted into college. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was, and it was a typical story. You know, dad wasn't around. There was no male role model in his, mm -hmm. in his life. Mm -hmm. And nobody had ever talked to him like that before. Well, you that's know? the thing. I mean, that's the thing, too. I think most people, under, they understand one thing, whatever the media portrays or even whatever a movie will portray, which in this day and age now, it's rare to see a movie that's, that's showing cops that are good. They're always showing possibly a cop or a detective that is good, that is fighting a corrupt, you know, uh, system of cops, yeah. you know, and it's always about corruption or, or racism or whatever the case is. What the reality is, is what you just said. Mm -hmm. That story happens every day across our great land. Tons of interactions where there are police officers that are sacrificial, not only in their time, but just even in their effort in going out and finding some kid or some person, right? Homeless, alcoholic, drug addict, uh, you know, beaten down wife, uh, mm -hmm. husband that may be, you know, whatever, destitute. There's all types of those stories out there and it's never portrayed. So for you to tell that story, it just highlights to me, that's what cops do. Yeah. We are community caretakers. And yeah. part of that being a community caretaker is, you know, that exactly, that story is the epitome of what that means. Yeah. And so, it's unfortunate because there's so many stories out there like that, that just don't get told because it's the negative stuff that gets all the shine, you know, but the, the, the good thing is that there are men and women, despite that, that still go out there and do their job every day and continue, and continue to build those relationships and, and have those effects on people, have that effect on people.
you know, mm-hmm. despite everything that's going on. Yeah. And I and I have to be honest, man, in today's climate, I don't know if I could make it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I guess that's why I'm no longer in the job. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm happy to see like my department now, like I said, when I was working, we had a big hiring in the 60s and 70s. All those guys went out. When I came in, a lot of the people that I came in with, came in with are now going out in our department. I probably know maybe 15% of the people left there now, mm-hmm. but it's a much younger, very diverse department now. And I can see the, the, the changes that they're making and quote the community policing efforts, the new chief that they have in there. And our chief was good. The chief that I had was really good about doing those types of things, but it was the people that he had around him that weren't willing to put in the effort. You know, I remember when I, cause when I, at my department, when I started, I was only, I think I was one of not including the chief, maybe seven black officers out of 150 people. Wow. And when I got hired, I think it was shortly after I was hired, I got a call to come into the station to meet with a reporter that was doing a story on minority officers in the suburbs. Well, I get there and there's no reporter there, but there was a photographer. And we take a bunch of pictures and I, you know, I go home and four days later, my mom calls me and say, Hey, did you see your picture on the front page of the newspaper? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know? So I go and grab the paper and sure shit, here I am on the front page with this big headline, minority officers in high demand in the suburbs. So I, I started reading the story and it says officer McNeil was working as a cook and chief Thomas came in and said, you ever thought about being the police? And he says, no, he goes, be in my office the next day. He gives me a gun and a badge. And here I am. I'm like, who wrote this shit? <laughs> That's hilarious. So, you know, you talk about that, you talk about the diversity, you know, that was, and you took this next question right out of my head is for you, you said you were one of seven uh, black officers, right? Mm-hmm. Out of 150. Did you feel any racial tension when Not you at all. came on the department? Not at all. I was, and, and that was one of the things that I was really surprised about. And I, I can honestly say, were there some people there that I thought may have been racist? Yeah. Did I ever feel it? No. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can honestly say that I never experienced, had one incident um, that I can honestly say that was, well, I felt like it was, it was racial tension or anything like that you know our department i think once i proved myself that i was capable of doing the job nobody gave a shit what color i was you know and i i always i remember the day that i was really accepted by the older officers and it was like my second week out on the road by myself we had an armed robbery at a gas station and I ended up becoming the primary car in a pursuit that it went down into Detroit and I ended up ramming the car. We ended up catching the guys. And, and it was that day that I could feel the change as far as their belief in me and my ability to do the job, mm-hmm. you know? And, and then at that point it was, and, 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 and let me back up for a second. I'll <laughs> My first week on the job, it was actually my first day. I was still on days where all the old timers were at. <laughs> and I go downstairs to get my patrol car for the, for the shift. I put all my stuff in. I go back upstairs to turn in my vehicle inspection sheet. 
So I come back downstairs to get in my car to hit the road. The car is gone, but all my shit sitting in the space where the car <laughs> used to be. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, okay, is this a black white thing? You know, because I was the only black on the shift at that time. I, I take that back. There was two, two of us on the shift at that time. And I'm thinking, okay, it's just a, a racist thing, but it, it wasn't, it was just, Hey, you're the young rookie punk. Why are you taking the newer car that the vets drive? <laughs> you right, know? Right. And, and I, and I had to, I had to learn that, you know, you, you, you know, you got two weeks on the job. You don't come in and take the best patrol car. No, no. You know, in some departments, you probably got your ass whooped, <laughs> you know. But yeah, to answer your question, man, no, I, I, I can honestly say I never felt that. That's awesome. And again, you know, everybody's experiences are different. But when I look into law enforcement as a whole, even from my experience, I'm a Latin officer, you know, in a very low percentage, low, low percentage on a pretty big department where the Latin officers that were on the department, very low even with, mm -hmm. right. Um, but I never felt it. I never mm -hmm. thought that there was these officers for one. I never realized, like, I couldn't even see into cars to even somebody say like, Oh, you pulled me over. Cause I'm black or you pulled yeah. me over because <laughs> I'm whatever. Kill you. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I can't even see into the car. Like you're driving 50 miles an hour, you know, past me, like what yeah. the hell am I looking at? But you're, you know, the color of your car. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, that's, and that's what's a shame is that there's always this, there's always this narrative for whatever reason to make it seem as if like, again, you know, it's an us against them, even within departments like, oh, you're black and I'm white, mm -hmm. or I'm going to hold you down and oppress you. I'm not saying that there's, there may be some of that somewhere. I, I've talked to all across the country, LA, New York, uh, now you in Michigan, Florida. I've never heard that. I haven't yeah. heard one story about that. And yeah. you've interviewed tons of officers as well, too, from all walks of life. Have yeah. you heard those no. types of stories? No. And I'm sure it happens. But I, I honestly can say in my 20 years, I never experienced it, no. Yeah. You know, you know and I, um, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, what I was going to say is, you know, <clears throat> this, this kind of goes into this um, thought is, the public has a perception of police. They're the ones that are quickly trying to tell you how to do your job, mm -hmm. right? And my, my question to you is, in your opinion, like what's, what facet or facets of law enforcement officers does the general population not know or assume about law enforcement officers? Oh, man, I got a couple of things. Um, the first I would say, I think people just don't realize that we're human. <laughs> I, I, and and I, I seriously say that because I think people see us in this uniform and that's all they see is the uniform. And they think that because we have this uniform on that we have the answer to everything. We can do anything in the world. It, I'll never forget a gentleman called me when I was working the desk one day and he says, now we have, three, uh, two freeways that go through our city, very busy freeways. And he calls and he says, um, there's three semi trucks on the side of the road with these long things. What they were was some kind of turbine propellers on the trucks. They were pulled over for whatever reason. He goes, do you know what they are, what they're carrying? He said, how am I supposed to know? I'm up here on the front desk. 
<laughs> you know, he goes, well, don't they have to call you when they come into your city? I go, do you know how many trucks come through this city? <laughs> I said, do you know that that would be all we would do all day long with taking these phone calls? He goes, you guys don't take those kind? No. You know, I think people just don't understand what police officers do on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's why I always try to encourage people that, that don't understand, go do a ride-along. Mm -hmm. See what officers do every day in your community. You know, yeah, I remember when I was working, I would have citizens that would come and do ride-alongs, and they would have one perspective when they got in the car at the beginning of the shift. And when we were done, it was like, man, I didn't notice what you guys do. Yeah, most people don't, because they, they see everything on TV, and they think we solve crimes in 30 minutes. You know, we got the answer to everybody, to every crime that happens. You know, <laughs> I, I remember going to an armed robbery, and the guy has video of the suspects, and he's telling me, we're can't you guys go and arrest them now? I'm like, we don't know who they are. Well, don't you have face ID or a recognition? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I, Elon Musk does not work for. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I would just say that I think people just simply don't know what people, what police officers do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I, th I think they give us more credit than they should as far as being these superheroes yeah we we do some 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 heroic things but at the end of the day we're we're people just like you are mm -hmm. you know that's the that's the bottom line we, we're going to make mistakes we we have families we have feelings we cry we put on our pants the same as you do we're, we're nothing special other than we're there to make sure that you are safe when you go to bed at night you know that's can you does that make us special yeah to a certain degree, but we're not on this plateau like everyone thinks that we may be. You know, we're just human people, just human beings, just trying to support our families and make it home every night. That's all. Yeah, you know? it's 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 just a it's a profession. You're right. It's a profession that most people take just based off of what they see on the news or on TV, sitcoms and stuff like that. And ultimately, I saw this video. Ultimately, we are so much more or have been, mm -hmm. <laughs> me and you retired, we were so much more. I saw this video on Instagram and it was an incredible video. And it was a, it was a gentleman, I wanna say it was a doctor that was talking and I guess he's been studying police and police tactics for like over 20 or 30 years. But the fact is, is that he came out and he was talking in this video and they were showing all these incredible, um, just kind of like, features of what cops should do on a day-to-day -day basis along with what he was saying but one of the things that he did say is that you know police officers we are we're psychologists mm -hmm. we're social workers mm -hmm. without a doubt <laughs> we're you know the the person that tells you how to get from a to b and probably tells you from a b to c to d without <laughs> looking at a map or a gps right yeah we're salt, we're crime solvers. Uh, we're also mentors and coaches. You know, we wear so many hats. Police officers wear so many hats because that job, again, it wraps around that the, the term for me that wraps around all that is community caretaker. Mm -hmm. And a community needs people like police in order to be able to be coaches and mentors to be that, in a sense, that kind of band-aid psychologist, to be able to read people, to be able to talk to them, be, be able to talk them down and de-escalate 
situations, yeah. you know, to be able to take this little boy that you did and for all you know, you saved that woman's life and saved his life. Yeah. You know, um, and that's, and that's, what's amazing. That's what you're spot on. I think that's what needs to be put out there more and with your podcast and my podcast and the probably thousands of other law enforcement podcasts out there. I think that's what's happening is there's been yeah. a change and a shift. For sure. And like I said, that's, that's, that was my main goal with my, with my podcast. You know, there's, we don't, it comes up from time to time, but we don't really get into the to politics and, and policies and, and tactics and things like that. We focus purely. And if you listen to the podcast, it's about the men and women. We, we talk about things that aren't even related to law enforcement because I want people to see that other side and see that we're no different than they are. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're, we're just people. We have the same problems and feelings and everything else as anybody else though. We just happen to, our job just happened to be law enforcement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, you know, one thing that you touched on early is that um, you started this business and, and even though it was a, it was a personal uh, adversity for you and your wife. But one of the things that I find with a lot of law enforcement officers, and I even felt this myself, when I left the job, it was hard for me to transition into a different life mm -hmm. outside of law enforcement, because I felt like that's all I knew. That was my niche. And I did that for 20 years. But you, you you're an entrepreneur now, and you wanted to be an entrepreneur before you ever became a police officer. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about that transition for yourself? And what, like, what mentally, what, did you have any issues when you left the job to be able to transition? I know you talked about the, the cell phone store, but you continuously pursued this entrepreneurship. Yeah, let me, let me, before I answer your question, let me back up for a minute. When I started the police department in 92, I left in 1995 to start my business, mm. which was a janitorial franchise that I bought. I was gone for 14 months, got the business up and going. And I got a call from the chief one day and he asked me to come back to work because he thought that, you know, I was doing a great job. And, and at that point, the business was doing great. And I decided to go back and I still have that janitorial business today. You know, it's been 20, 24, 25 years, whatever it has been. And that was, I've started many businesses, <laughs> believe it or not, and not all of them have succeeded. Um, but that's the, that's the bread and butter right there. Mm -hmm. And to answer your question, what made that transition once I left easier is because for me, police work was what I did. It was not who I was. Mm. It was what I did. It was not who I was. I didn't, when I left the job, unless I had court or something, I was on to something else. Mm -hmm. I, that's, I never tested for any supervisor position or anything like that because I, didn't, I had employees, I had people I already, already were responsible for. I don't want to have to go and drive that scout car around and, and, and be responsible for people there also. Mm -hmm. You know, so for me, when I, it was something that I did day to day to provide healthcare for my family and to put my kids through college. So it was not who I was. It did not define me as a person, you know, and, and I know for a lot of guys, they sleep, eat and breathe law enforcement. And that's cool. That's cool. If that's, if that's your thing, that's fine. 
but it just never was for me. And I, and I don't know if that has to do with the way that I came into law enforcement because it wasn't something that I was looking to do, you know, but I, I, I think that anyone that's in this profession should have other interests and interests that they're things that they're in, involved in outside of police work, because you need a balance. Because we, did you we, have friends? Did you have friends outside of policing yes. that you still hung out with and you yes. still did things with? Yes, I had two groups of friends. My, I have, I guess you can say, eight best friends. <laughs> four from law enforcement and four outside of law enforcement. Mm. You know, and I, I, it's weird, man, because it's so easy to fall into that trap of just hanging around cops all the time, you know, when you, when you, because they can relate to what you go through, mm -hmm. you know? So you start to push other people away because either because they no longer want to associate with you or because you simply are just starting to, to, to draw away from them because of what you deal with on the job. And I just never, that never happened to me. You know, I saw people as people, I didn't want to get into security work and all that stuff when I retired. You know, a lot of the guys that I retired with, they're now, you know, working security at the federal building or hospitals and things like that. And that's, hey, more power to them. I just never, police work was what I did. It was not who I was. Simple as that. That's you know, and that, and, and that made that transition just because I had something else going. Right. You know, I'll never forget when I left my department in 1995 to start the business, one of these senior officers, he came up to me at a going away party that I had and he had a, a little too many pops, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he says, Tony, I just want to tell you, man, I envy you. He says, I go, why is that? He goes, because you're not afraid to step outside of this box. Mm -hmm. And he goes, I've never told anybody this, but I want to start a gun range one day, but I'm afraid to give up the security. And he goes, I admire you for stepping out and giving up the security to go out on faith and start something new. And that's all it was. It was faith. I didn't know if it was going to work, you know, but I'm happy to say that, you know, that guy, he, he continued, he finished his career and he retired and he started this gun range. That's you awesome. Know? Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's an influence of what you had too. you know, that's the thing, too, is I think a lot of times with officers, you know, they they get into this rut that, that you talked about. Not only do they disassociate from like possible friends that they had that weren't in law enforcement, but, but then they kind of sidle themselves into this kind of what I would call toxic culture. Um, and, and they start looking up to possible people that are on the department that <laughs> that don't have their best interest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's for and, sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and takes them down the wrong path. Right. You got to surround. I know you had a, a past guest, uh, Mark Hillenbrand from uh, LAPD. Mm -hmm. uh, he talks a lot about, you know, surrounding yourself with, you know, positive people that are going to be that are going to add to your ambitions. Right. And, yeah. and add to your stature in the sense of like what you want to do, mental health, fitness, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's just true. I think in anything, it doesn't matter whether it's policing, but for whatever reason in policing, it just seems like, you know, we kind of attach ourselves to the misery loves company type thing. Yep. That's for sure. And I don't know if that's because of the, 
the things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis that that we see and that we you know we have to deal with everybody else's problems all day long that it it just attaches itself to us mm-hmm. you know but I, I i never allowed that to happen to me and it's funny because looking back at it i was always it could be 50 officers standing around and for some reason i would be the one that if somebody needed to talk they would come talk to me <laughs> And to this day, my kids always tease me. They go, every place you go, you make friends. <laughs> you know? What's know wrong with that? <laughs> I don't know if it's the way I look or, or, or what it is. But, you know, we'll go shopping with my, with my wife and the kids or something. And we'll go and they'll try on clothes. And I'll go and sit up at the front of the store. And they'll walk by, Dad made a new friend. Because, you know, it'll be me and another husband up there talking and stuff. You know, but it was the same way on the job. It could literally be five or six cops standing there. And I'm the one that everybody would always come and talk to, you know, <laughs> and I don't know if it was just my, my face or I just had this approachability about me or what it was, but yeah. And I, I, I it, it, it probably has something to do with it because in looking back at some of the guys that I work with, you know, they were having their issues, you know, whether it was personal at home or on the job and, and things like that. And it, it, it does take a toll on you. It really does. Cause like I say, those last five years really took a toll on me. It was, it was hard for me to get through those last five years because I was one, I was forced to go there and it was different working that desk, man. I mean, because mm-hmm. people come in and they don't see you as a law enforcement officer. They do not, and, and, and you're dealing with a whole different set of problems than you deal with on the street. I would rather deal with the bullshit on the street any day than <laughs> deal with the, the, the custody exchanges and, and all the stuff <laughs> that takes place inside the station, man. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, that, yeah, that just totally took a toll on me. But, you know, like I say, that, that last day made it all worth it, though, when that young man came in there with his mother. What, um, what advice would you give, like if that young man today came to you and said, I want to be in the, poli- I want to be in the policing business, mm-hmm. what, what, what advice would you give somebody trying to seek a law enforcement career? I would say, remember this one thing, every interaction you have with a person is going to leave a lasting impression, mm. whether it's good or bad. And you don't always dictate that, but you can kind of guide the direction in which it goes. And I remember, again, my last week, like I said, I was a hostage negotiator. And we had a pastor. He was a very prominent pastor in the community. He and I had a run-in when I was on the road. um, And it didn't, it was ugly. It didn't go very well. And when I went in to work on the front desk, it was my last week. His son got arrested. His son was bipolar and he was having some mental issues. And when they took him up to the jail, our jail was on the third floor of the building. They had to take him back into isolation because he was causing problems in the holding tank with the other inmates. So they took him back there and he started flooding the toilets and everything. And my lieutenant, who I was started out and said was my first FTO. He, mm-hmm. he later became my lieutenant on the, on the cert team. And he goes, Hey, we got this guy. We need to get him out of the holding tank. You want to go up and talk to him? So I said, sure. So I go up on the elevator and the elevator doors open. 
And there was a young officer there that was going to be taking my place as the hostage negotiator. And I step off the elevator and I see him standing there and he has a taser on, in his hand and black gloves on. And I look at him, I go, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going to talk to this guy. They go, dude, you're not going to get much talking done with that taser in your hand and the black <laughs> gloves on. You sending a whole different message. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you sending a whole different message, you know? And he looks at me and he goes, I never thought about that. I go, dude, you are a, a hostage negotiator. Your weapon is your mouth. You have to learn how to talk to people. That's what, that's how you're going to be get by is with your mouth. You know, now if, if things go sideways, that's what we got these other guys for. But you and I, we talk to people mm -hmm. and you, everything right now about you says, I'm not here to talk, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and the long story short, when I went back to actually talk to the guy, he was causing all this commotion just because nobody took the time to talk to him. All he wanted was someone to go check on his dog because when he got arrested, his dog hadn't been fed. <laughs> so I sent the car over to feed his dog. And I'll never forget his dad came in to bond him out. And I was up at the desk and his dad go, officer McNeil, you remember me? I said, yes, sir. I remember you. He goes, I just want to say thank you for the way you treated my son. I heard about what you did. I said, Hey man, listen, all you needed was somebody just to listen to him, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And, and I just happened to be there. Everybody else was beating their chest and ready to go in and extract him out of the cell. Just listen to him. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you That's know? Awesome. so that, that that would be my advice to anybody you know if you're gonna get into this profession just remember that every interaction you have good or bad leaves a lasting impression that's for sure they remember every you may not remember every traffic stop every arrest every mm -hmm. incident that you go to on a call but those people don't run into police every single day and they know exactly who you are, what yep. you said, what you did and how you said it. Yep. For sure. Yep. Yeah. You're definitely right about that. Hey, we're getting to the end of this podcast, man. And I, I kind of just lost track of time. Honestly, I can just talk to you. <laughs> I know <laughs> I, I ramble a little bit here. Hey, man, man. <laughs> there ain't nothing wrong with rambling, <laughs> nothing wrong with anecdotes either. <laughs> you know, so Tony, like, we talked about a lot of different things, you know, you can talk about what you think, and I'm going to put kind of two questions in, in the same uh, ending here. First question is, there's a lot of things that could be changed in policing. So what are those things in your mind that could change and that should change? And then lastly, what is your overall message that you want to get across to the listeners that are either LEOs and there's also listeners that are non-LEOs as well. Mm -hmm. um, as far as what I want to get across for, well, let me start with the changes in law enforcement. I think we're starting to see some changes that need to be made. I said this on my last episode, our society, it has changed. We've become a passive, a more passive society. And as a result of that, law enforcement has to change along with society. We cannot continue to do and use the same tactics and methods that we've used in the past because we have a whole new generation, a whole new community, if you will, that we now serve. 
and they have different expectations than people 20, 30 years ago had. And I think that not that not and I, and I don't say that to say that people in law enforcement are doing things just absolutely wrong because we're not. But when things do go wrong, they go wrong. Mm. You know what I mean? And and it makes the profession as a whole look bad. So I think that there definitely needs to be more attention paid to the getting the word out that, hey, we are human beings. And this is what I would say to those that are not in law enforcement. Also, departments need to do more to personalize the officers that work for them. I remember we could not even get on social media when I was working. You would get written up if you got on social media. I, I, even now, I have officers that I will ask to come on the podcast and they have to get department approval. Mm. I say, but my podcast isn't about your department. <laughs> you know, but the department should look at it from the standpoint that, hey, if this person can shine a, a, a light on what we do in a positive way, why not get them out there? Because we need more of those stories to be told. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, and I think that's, that's one way that the, the departments and policing as a whole, we have to embrace the community that the, the times that we're in now. And we are a, a social media driven society. If it is, if it's not on social media, it didn't happen, <laughs> you, you know, and we have to be able to use that tool to better tell the stories of the men and women that are in this profession so that people outside of this profession can see that we are human beings just like them and they can have a different set of expectations from us. Same standards, but different expectations as to how we do things, why we do things, when we mess up, why we did it. You know, when we did something good, why we did it. Mm -hmm. And I think the only way you can, or one of the ways you can change that is simply by allowing your men and women that worked in your department to be able to express themselves. And, and, I, and I credit the new chief at our department because I was shocked when I walked in, I saw guys with beards and tattoos and, that wasn't allowed when we were there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was shocked. You know, I see a lot of the younger guys now on my department on social media doing their thing. And, and, and just and I know one quick story I got to tell because I had this young man. I had never met him. He didn't know who I was, but he worked for my department. Um, Brandon Walker was his name. I actually had to get him on the podcast because my mom still lives in the city of Southfield. And my nephew was at my mom's house one day and he was out in the yard playing basketball. Brandon was on patrol and he stopped. And he goes and he approaches my nephew and my nephew right away had never dealt with the police. So his first thought was, what did I do? Mm -hmm. Because of society's perception of us when the police come, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, but all Brandon wanted to do was just play ball with him. And but once my nephew realized that they shot ball for almost a half hour, 
And I'll never forget, my mom called me and she goes, hey, Dre just ran in the house and he's all excited because an officer stopped by and played basketball with, that made his day. And it changed his perception of, for, even if it was for that moment, mm-hmm. of what he thought a police officer was. You know, and I gave, I had to call Brandon up. I, I had to figure out who he was, but I, cause like I say, he didn't know me. He didn't know that was my nephew. He didn't know that was my mom. He just happened to be driving. He stopped and he started playing basketball with this young man. He saw out in the street. Mm-hmm. And, but those are the types of things that change perception. And, and it goes back to what I said. Every interaction has a lasting impression. And the only way you're going to have those good impressions is to allow your men and women to express who they are to the community. Let the community see that these people, despite the badge and the uniform, are people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I love that. I, I love ending on that. Um, you know, every interaction you're, you're affecting, good or bad. Uh, the perception of police and yeah. that's completely true and that's you know the that may be the first and only interaction that yeah. somebody has with the police yeah so you're right I mean first impression means everything yep so um well Tony I, I am so like I said I'm honored to have you on I'm so thankful not only for your vulnerability and the stuff that you talked about earlier but just even in all the things that you brought to this um to this episode I mean it's just it's great I'm I'm glad that we definitely connected on Instagram. That's the yeah. beauty of embracing social media and technology sure. is that now we are able to, in a sense, affect change in, in this type of medium. And uh, I know you're doing that again. Um, if you just want to name how somebody can get in touch with you, uh, your Instagram, your website. Um, I know you're doing something big as well and trying to get a network together. So if you want to talk about that and plug it, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, let me just say thank you very much for having me come on as a guest. Um, this is my first time <laughs> like, on, on, on this side of the, of the platform. And, and like I said, I, I, I was nervous coming into it, but man, you, you, you know, you made me feel comfortable. I, I truly enjoyed the back and forth. Like I said, I know I ramble, but hey, that's just me. But I, I get a little passionate about talking about some of this stuff, you know. Um, but yeah, but if people want to reach out, you can reach me on, on Instagram and Facebook, the off duty podcast on Twitter, underscore off duty podcast. You can go to the website, the off duty podcast.com. Um, you know, as you, as you mentioned, Merritt, I'm trying to put together a, a, a police or first responders podcast network. Um, I'm in the process of doing that now. It's going to be called everyday heroes podcast network. I'm looking to bring on shows um, to, to, to add to the network. You know, if anybody wants more information about that, you know, just shoot me an email at Tony at the off duty podcast, or better yet, if you just go to um, uh, everydayheroes.com and everydayheroesnetwork.com and, and you can just fill out the form on there to just, just leave your information and I'll reach back out to you. But, you know, it's, it's all just an effort, man, to show that we are human beings, you know, and I appreciate you allowing me to come on your platform and, and, and express some of my views to your audience. And, um, you know, I hope they get something out of, out of this uh, conversation. Oh, definitely. They will. And again, thank you so much, Tony. Thank you, man. Thank you.